Hosea 8. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already, are they, already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. And they shall return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten its, his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. One author describes the minor prophets, the 12 smaller prophetic books in the Old Testament. One author describes the minor prophets as the part of your Bible where the pages still stick together. <laughs> and the reason the pages still stick together, the main reason probably why we don't read these 12 books of God's Word, these 12 books of Holy Scripture is probably because these books tend to carry a rather heavy message. As we heard last week and as we hear again this week. Today's passage begins with a word picture of a vulture circling up overhead above the people of God. Why do vultures circle overhead? Because they see something dead or dying. It's as if to say to the people of God in Hosea's day, even though you are thriving in material prosperity, you are in fact dying in your spiritual life. It's not a happy picture. It's a heavy word. And I don't presume that every single person who first read Hosea's message in Hosea's own day, I don't presume that each and every one of them truly was spiritually dead and without faith. I certainly don't assume that all of us today here are spiritually dead and without faith. That's not my assumption. And yet, these words, as heavy as they are, 
These words are God's words. And they are given for our good. And so while it may not be our main staple as Christians to read through the minor prophets, while it may be that for many of us this is the part of our Bible where the pages are stuck together, as hard as these words might be to listen to, I want to continue to lead us to slowly listen to what God Himself has to say. And I want to lead us in listening for the voice of God's Spirit for us and for our salvation and for our good, drawing our hearts to return back to Him today. Hosea speaks a little bit like an oncologist, a cancer doctor, right? He has a hard word of diagnosis. He tells us in Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, that there is hope for life. Why? Specifically because our God revives on the third day. Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. But that glad news that our God revives on the third day, it can only be fully grasped, fully understood. It can only be fully experienced if we listen carefully to the heavy words of diagnosis first. Before we get to the healing, we have to take some time and process the diagnosis of the deeper issues of the soul that Hosea has to deal with. The diagnosis that we hear specifically in Hosea chapter 8 is something like this. Self-sufficiency leads people who say they know God to forget their Maker. You see, at the beginning of this passage, there are these words in verse 2. To me they cry, My God, we, we're Israel, we know You. And yet by the end of chapter 8, the fact is revealed in verse 14. These very people who say, God, we know You. Verse 14 reveals they have, in fact, forgotten their maker. And the question then is, what leads from saying we know God to forgetting our maker? Perhaps a few different diagnoses would be appropriate in a few different circumstances. But Hosea's diagnosis Here in Hosea chapter 8 goes something like this. Self-sufficiency. Relying on ourselves. Self-reliance. Instead of relying on God. Leads people who say, God, we know you. To actually forgetting their maker. And then this passage shows us a few ways that God's people, that those who say we know God can spurn the good, as verse 3 puts it. It's a vivid picture. Here is God in all of His goodness, arms outstretched for His people. And how do His people respond? No thanks. We got this on our own. No thanks. We got this. No thanks. We're good. Hosea shows us a few different ways that self-sufficiency can show up among those who 
say they know God. One, is, one of those ways is what we might call DIY religion, do-it-yourself religion. High schoolers, I need to admit something to you. I'm old. Don't let my youthful looks deceive you. And I'll tell you how old I am. I'm so old that when Katie and I bought our first home together, we had a landline phone. So high schoolers, you could just let out a whoa right now because that, that makes me really old, right? We had a landline phone for real. It like rung and you could pick it up off the wall, right? And we had DSL internet, which translates really slow internet basically or something like that, right? It came through the phone line. That's how old I really am. And after we had lived in that new house for just a little while, we wanted to hang a picture on the wall in our kitchen, but there was one problem. Where we wanted to hang a picture on our wall in the kitchen, there was a phone jack right there in that spot on the wall. And being a rather handy fellow, actually not being a rather handy fellow, and unfortunately not having yet discovered that wealth of knowledge called YouTube for DIY projects, for do-it-yourself projects, I decided I can figure out surely how to remove the phone jack from the wall so that we can put a picture in its place. And so I got two tools with me. I took out the first tool and I unscrewed the screws that attached the phone jack to the wall and it came popping off. I thought I was done. But then I realized there were a whole bunch of wires attached to the back of this thing. And I thought, no problem. Wires hanging out of the wall, I can fix that. I got wire cutters, because that's what you do with wires that hang out of the wall, right? And I clipped them, and I shoved them back into the wall. Problem solved. And then we patched things up well enough. We made it look really pretty and beautiful, and with my masterful DIY home, uh, home improvement skills, I hung the picture frame thing right where Katie wanted it, and I'm telling you, it looked perfect until we picked up the phone later on that day in another room, and we realized for some reason, instead of that clear dial tone that we heard earlier, there's a wild hum and buzz inside our telephone. Something must be wrong with the phone. And then we tried to get on the internet, and that didn't work at all. And then all of a sudden, it started to sink in and dawn on me. Maybe I shouldn't have just cut wires and shoved them back behind the wall. Maybe that wasn't the smartest way to handle this DIY project. And I learned something really important that has stuck with me through the years ever since then. I learned that you should ask for advice before you do anything if your skill level is basically like like mine. But more deeply than that, here's what I learned about do-it-yourself DIY projects. What I learned is that when you're not qualified for the job, it's possible to make things look really great at the surface level while dangerous mistakes are hidden beneath the surface. When you're not qualified to do the job that you're attempting to do, and for me, that could be just about any job. Some of you can handle cutting phone lines and would know what to do. That wasn't, I wasn't yet qualified for that. But when you're not qualified for the job, it's possible to make things look really good for a while 
while only masking behind the surface deep, dangerous mistakes. And this is Hosea's warning to Israel in his own day. His warning is, be careful when you make your own DIY gods. Be careful with your DIY idols. Be careful with your DIY approaches to religion because while it might all look good at the surface level, it might be masking deeper problems where you can't quite yet see it. In Israel's case, their DIY religion consisted of drifting further and further away from God's revelation in Scripture. And so verse 12 might be captured a little bit better in the NIV than the ESV. The NIV translates verse 12, I wrote for them the many things of my law, but they regarded them as something foreign. And you hear the heart of our good God. I've given you my word. I've revealed myself and my ways to you in Scripture. And you're not even paying attention. Their DIY religion consisted of going through the motions externally and making the sacrifices, doing the stuff out on the outside without their hearts engaged by faith on the inside. And what is God's response to that? Well, look at verse 11. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become altars for sinning. It wasn't just drifting from God's revelation of Scripture. It wasn't just drifting away in their religious practices. It was also a matter of making their own gods. Look with me, if you would, at the self-sufficiency, the self-reliance, the DIY approach to life that's revealed in verse 4. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. And just as they had spurned the good, spurned God's goodness by turning away to DIY religion when God in His kindness was extending His arms. Now God says in verse 5, I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. It's a name that Hosea uses for the nation of Israel. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God's. You hear what God is saying, right? You've done, you've done something here by making these idols. You've attempted DIY idolatry, DIY religion. You've made for yourself your own gods in the image that you want gods to be made in. And what will be the result? Although it might look great on the outside to say we don't need God's revelation in Scripture, although it might look great on the outside to say, look, we're still doing all of the worship stuff, although it might look great on the outside to have fancy, impressive statues of God that are crafted just the way their culture would love statues of God to look. Although it might look great on the outside, it's hiding 
Real danger is somewhere beneath the surface. Look with me, if you would, at verse 7. For they sow to the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. What is God saying here in this poetic, prophetic word? He's saying that while all of your DIY, self-made religion might look good on the outside, it might be masking deeper problems. Maybe you've heard of this idea of poetic justice, of justice coming in a way that is related to the crimes that are committed. It's a frequent theme in literature, and it shows up sometimes in Scripture. There's a kind of poetic justice that this passage points out. You see, in Hosea's day, people imagined that statue gods could control or at least shape the weather patterns. They imagined that having statue gods out in the fields through reshaping the weather patterns could improve the crops, improve material prosperity. And yet look at what God says about that. They're sowing something to get the wind to work for them. What will they reap? A tornado? They're planting seeds for their own prosperity and trusting in gods made in the image that they want their gods to be made in. They're trusting in other gods instead of trusting in their maker. What will be the result of that? Grain will grow, but it will have no heads. There will be wheat, but nothing to make Wheaties with. There will be stalks of corn, but no ears for corn on the cob. A fruitless harvest, an empty harvest, will result from our empty DIY approach to religion. How about us? Of course, as church-going people, we want to say, God, we know God. And even many of our neighbors in our community, maybe they don't go to church on Sunday, but maybe they grew up going to church with Grandma. I think the three main religions in Aurora are Islam, Hinduism, and I went to church with my grandma when I was a kid, (laughs) as best as I can tell from talking to neighbors. Maybe we have neighbors who went to church with grandma when they were a kid. They don't go to church very often, but you talk about God and they say, God, we know God. Those of us here are gathering on Sunday. We say, God, we know him. But is it possible that in some ways we begin to harbor views of God that are unhitched from his revelation of himself in Scripture? Approaches to religion that are based more on the externals than on drawing near to God by faith? Is it possible that we might reshape God into our own image or into an image that our culture would find more attractive? Two sociologists a few years ago did a study of teenagers, a sociological study on how teenagers in America view religious issues. They studied teenagers from a whole bunch of different faith backgrounds. Some 
uh, had grown up Roman Catholic, some mainline Protestant, some conservative Protestant, some in black Protestant churches. Some people were Jewish. Some had grown up in Mormon homes. And some grew up in non-religious households. And through their meticulous research, these sociologists discovered a couple of surprising things. One of their discoveries was that contrary to what had been kind of a, a common narrative, contrary to this idea that in just a few more years, more and more Americans are going to be atheists, contrary to that idea, they found out that American teenagers, by and large, do not think of themselves as atheists. By and large, American teenagers say, God, we know God. But the other surprising thing they found through their extensive research was that regardless of the faith background teenagers had grown up in, a large majority of teenagers had the same view of God. Does that strike you as a little off? That regardless of what faith background you're from, teenagers end up in America believing in the same picture of God? And more specifically, the picture of God that teenagers tended to believe in had these couple of common traits, or these couple common ideas about religion. For one thing, they discovered through their research that most young people in America tend to agree that, quote, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Now, if I came up to you and said, is the central goal of life to be happy and to feel good about yourself? It might be a little bit tricky to answer because it's not entirely wrong. But notice how different that idea is than the traditional Christian understanding across the centuries that our chief purpose in life is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. And then, many young people in America not only believe that the central goal of life is simply to be happy and to feel good about yourself, but then in addition to that, the sociologists discovered that most young people in America believe that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Now here again, it's not like entirely off base. If you have a problem, can you go to God with your problem? Sure. But to suggest that God does not need to be involved in one's life except in those times when you feel like you want Him to be involved in your life? To have an idea that God doesn't expect a relationship with us except when we call on Him to come and give us what we want? It ends up Delivering a picture of God, this is the bold claim of the book that uh, Christian Smith and Melinda Denton wrote, 
it ends up delivering a picture of God which is not consistent with the understanding of God found in any major religion anywhere in the world. In other words, we live in a culture that compared with other cultures around the world and across time is very individualistic, right? And there's kind of one kind of individualism we sometimes call rugged individualism, the pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, I got this myself kind of individualism. There's another kind of individualism, which is sometimes called expressive individualism. Expressing yourself is the highest value in life. We live in a culture that is deeply individualistic. Should it surprise us then that we have made a God in our own image? A version of God who exists to help us when we need help. Who exists to help us when we need a little help pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Who exists to help us fulfill ourselves by expressing ourselves. Is it any surprise that we have made a God who looks more like a divine butler than a deity? You see, what Christian Smith and Melinda Denton have unearthed through their research is that while we don't have shiny statues, generally speaking, in a lot of our homes, we do have gods made in our own image. And it's not just our neighbors down the street who don't go to church on Sundays. It might be many of us here, whether younger or older, whether a new Christian or a long-time Christian, have we perhaps begun to believe in a God who looks less like the God who reveals himself in the Bible and more like the expectations of our culture around us? That life exists with a central goal of just being happy and feeling good about ourselves, that God does not intend to be involved in our lives except when we ring a bell for him as our divine butler, and hope that he'll come and resolve a problem for us? If Hosea were here today, I think he would warn us. I think he would warn us of the dangers of saying, God, we know him. All the while unhitching ourselves from his revelation in Scripture. Going through the motions when we feel like it and refashioning God in an image that we prefer for ourselves. Beloved, let's not forget our Maker. That's one way that this kind of self-sufficiency, this kind of self-reliance can draw our hearts away from God when we take a DIY approach to religion and kind of refashion things centered on us. But there's a second way that self-sufficiency or self-reliance can draw us away from God. This passage identifies what we might call DIY political alliances, which like DIY religion can have the effect of drawing our hearts away from our Maker. Look with me if you would at verse 8. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. 
For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and the princes shall writhe because of the tribute. This issue is expressed a little more clearly one chapter earlier in Hosea chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, when Hosea describes his nation like this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. What's going on here? These are the two great political powers in Hosea's day. One power to the east, one power to the west. And here is his little nation thriving materially in their prosperity and eager to protect the material prosperity that they've seen gained in their lifetimes. And they're trying to figure out, caught in between these powers to the right and these powers to the left, these powers from the east and these powers to the west, caught in between Assyria and Egypt, there are kind of these two sides of Israel's politics. One saying, let's go and put our hope in Assyria. We talked about this last week, 2 Kings chapter 14 or 15, I'm losing the number right now, 2 Kings chapter 14 or 15 describes this scenario in which one of the kings in Hosea's lifetime put exacting taxes on God's people, put exacting taxes on the nation of Israel. Why? To go and buy security from Assyria. And yet there's this other impulse amongst some of the people in Israel to say, we can't trust Assyria, let's run to that political power instead. And so here are God's people described as silly, without sense, running back and forth from that political power to that political power. And the result in chapter 7, verse 12 is written like this. Again, here's kind of poetic justice. As they go from one political power to another, I will spread my net over them. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Once again here, we have a DIY problem. When Israel seeks to solve her problems by running to worldly powers... Man-made political solutions may look good. They may look successful on the surface. All the while hiding destructive consequences behind the wall. In fact, man-made political solutions can be a part of a path of God's people forgetting their maker. It can be part of a path from people saying, God, sure, we know him, to those same people landing in this place, which is rightly described as having forgotten him. The only solution for God's people is to repent of trusting in politics and to return to the Lord with a singular trust in Him above all else and a singular allegiance to Him over everything else. Now, somebody may say, sure, that works in the nation of Israel 2,700 years ago. 
But we're a part of a church. <laughs> we're not a part of the nation of Israel. And I would agree with you and say you are right. We are not living in ancient Israel. And it's really helpful to realize that. And yet, how should a church handle this kind of issue of different political powers offering protection from one side or another? How should the church of Jesus Christ deal with that? Think for a minute about how this issue played out in the New Testament church in Rome. One of the repeated issues in Paul's letter to the Romans is unity in Christ between Jewish and Greek believers. You want to nod your head if you've read that and seen that there before? So if you've read the book of Romans, there is this theme of gospel unity, Jesus-centered unity between Greek believers and Jewish believers. Obviously, this was an ethnic distinction between people, but this ethnic distinction would have also come with very different political views. Jewish people would have grown up in Rome with a lot of reason to fear the emperor and the empire. Many Greek people in Rome, on the other hand, would have grown up proud of the Roman emperor and proud of the Roman empire. So if you're in charge of a small group in the church in Rome, how do you deal with that? How do you help some believers who grew up afraid of the empire and some believers who grew up proud of the empire? Here's Paul's word to them. Church, made up of some who fear the empire and some who are proud of the empire. Church, welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Romans 15, 7. Do you hear Paul's fundamental strategy for an ethnically and politically and practically divided church? Welcome one another. Receive one another. Accept one another. Love one another. Show grace to one another. Welcome one another, not the way that one political party welcomes another. Welcome one another the way God in Christ has welcomed you in. With a grace-based embrace. Even if there was a long, slow process of sanctification still ahead for each and every one of us. A church where Christ is supreme, according to Paul's vision, is a church where cultural divisions and political allegiances are put in their proper place. A church where Christ is supreme is a church where cultural divisions and political allegiances are surrendered and submitted to the greater Lordship of Jesus Christ. Here's how one author talks about that for churches today. Some insightful and thoughtful words from a pastor named Scott Sauls. 
He writes about the issue like this. He says, when it comes to politics, the Bible gives us no reason to believe that Jesus would side completely with one political viewpoint over another. Now let me pause right there and let that sink in for a second. Because some people are already uncomfortable and trying to figure out, is Josh trying to get people to vote for Republicans? Or is Josh trying to get people to vote for Democrats? I'm trying to get you to pledge your allegiance to Jesus. Okay, let me make my intentions 100% clear here. But I also want to pause on that first sentence. When it comes to politics, the Bible gives us no reason to believe that Jesus would side completely with one view over another. What Scott Sauls is saying is not that all viewpoints are equally valid. What Scott Sauls is not saying is that political decisions are of no consequence. It turns out that public policy related to abortion has great consequences. It turns out that public policy and political rhetoric about immigrants will have great consequences. It turns out that public policy related to religious freedom for Christians will have great consequences. It turns out that public policy related to religious freedom for Muslims and for people of other faith, of other faith backgrounds has great consequences. Are you tracking with me? I'm not saying, and Scott Sauls is not saying, that all viewpoints are completely equal. But what he is saying is that the Bible gives us no reason to believe that Jesus would side completely with one political viewpoint over another. Why? Because the kingdom of God is so much bigger than any one American political party. The Bible gives us no reason to believe that Jesus would side completely with one political viewpoint over another. Rather, when it comes to kings and kingdoms, Jesus sides with himself. <laughs> I like the way he puts that. Our loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom must always exceed our loyalty to any earthly agenda, whether political or otherwise, and if the prophet Hosea were here, he'd say, Amen. And then Scott Sauls gives us a little bit of a test of our allegiances. It's a test that I struggle with myself sometimes, but a test that has been helpful to me since I read it. He says, we should feel, we as Christians, we as people who say that we believe in the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ above all else, we should feel at home with people who share our faith but not our politics even more than we do with people who share our politics and not our faith. If this is not our experience, then we very well may be rendering unto Caesar what belongs to God. So, Redeemer Community Church, let me ask you to consider for a moment, how are we doing with this issue of surrendering everything to King Jesus, submitting it all to his lordship, and placing our confidence 
not in one political power or another, but placing our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian brother or sister, maybe I could ask you to consider that question for yourself. If you took what we might call the Scott Saul's test and said, am I more comfortable with those who share my faith but not my political views or am I more comfortable with those who share my political views but not my faith? In the quiet of your own heart, how would you answer that question? And I don't know, but what might that say about your allegiances, about your heart, about the lordship of Christ in your life? You see, through the word of the Lord today, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to challenge us as a church to side with Jesus Christ, to let go of our hopes in worldly political alliances so that we can cling more wholeheartedly to Him. And you want to know what might happen as we do that? I have this crazy dream that as Christians become more devoted to Jesus Christ above all else, as we live in this politically divided cultural moment when people can't even have a conversation with each other about immigration without getting mean and nasty, when we live in this culturally divided moment that we're in, as the church of Jesus Christ submits and surrenders all of our hopes to Him above all else, I wonder if the church of Jesus Christ might be the very last place in Aurora where we can actually have conversations with each other about important policy issues in politics without that degenerating into judgment and anger, and hatred. As we pledge our allegiance to Jesus Christ above all else, I wonder if we might be the last place in Aurora, if churches of Jesus Christ might be the last places in Aurora where people can sit down and have conversations even about things that we didn't grow up agreeing on, but doing so in a spirit of love which is patient and kind and is not arrogant or rude and does not insist on its own way. I've got this crazy dream that wonderful things might happen as we devote ourselves 100% to Jesus. Beloved, in all of our concerns about politics, let's not devote ourselves to political powers and in the process, forget our maker. This passage has a sober warning for us about self-reliance and the negative consequences that can come from self-reliance. It calls us to place our hope wholly in the Lord what will that look like for us today? Let me shift gears and share a couple of kind of more specific ways forward for us. One of them is an application point specifically for the church. 
And the application point for us, as people who say we know God, is let's take seriously the danger of spiritual drift. Let's not presume that because we started well and we said we know God, let's not presume that we're all good from here on out. Let's take seriously the danger of spiritual drift. In fact, do you want to hear how the early church talked about this exact kind of issue? The Apostle Paul was talking about uh, scenarios from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament Scriptures, and writing to a church about scenarios of God's judgment in the Old Testament. And here's how Paul writes about it to the church. He says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Paul writes to the church, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 of them fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble. I love the simplicity of this. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, church, that is not common to man. And God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. How should we as Christians in the church today listen to heavy warning passages like this in the book of Hosea? Listen, some of us with very soft hearts are going to feel crushed by the weight of it. And I want to remind you right away about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But some of us even in the church, just like some in the church in Corinth in Paul's day. We need to be warned by God's word to take seriously the danger of spiritual drift. And so what do we do with that? Let me move on to an application point for all of us. It's the one application point that we've got throughout this whole sermon series, the one main point of the book of Hosea. And that application point is this. Let's return to the Lord with faith in His reviving grace. Remember those precious words that we looked at last week? Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us. Why? That He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. And after two days, He will revive And on the third day, He will raise us up so that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on.
Not resting content. Not just sitting back and kicking up our feet and saying, however other people around me view God, just fine with me. Not kicking up our feet and saying, I'm, I know the Lord, so no big deal. But taking seriously the danger of drift. Confessing our own ways of spurning the good. Spurning the one who extends his arms in love and mercy to us. Confessing how we ourselves have turned away from our God and our maker. Why? So that we may return to him and discover in our own lives the wonder of his reviving grace.